Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. This morning, I get to start with a story, and it comes from my community group. I hope all of you have the experience of getting to be in a community group. I know for me, I love getting to be in my community group. We've been together for a while now. And one of the people in my community group that I've really grown to have a relationship with and I love and I think is an awesome guy is Dale Walter. Oh, Dale, you are. Look, I saw you right as I said it. What's up, buddy? Um, Yeah, thank you. See, he's real. I don't just make up my friends. Most of them. Um, But one of the, I love many things about Dale and our relationship, but something I love about Dale is that he's good for like probably two to three times a season to tell a story where you just sit there and you're like, no, like that didn't happen or that's not real. And it's not that I question him as a person. He has incredibly high integrity. It's just like that actually happened. That's crazy. There's no way. And so the other a while back, we're in group, and I have no idea what led to this, so don't ask me for the context. But Dale's telling a story about how, I think it was in high school, he was training for the wrestling team, because he was a wrestler, and if you guys don't know this, wrestling is an extremely physically demanding sport. Like, you got to be in some serious shape to be wrestling, not just because you wear a leotard, but because it goes for a while, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> So he's training for this, and part of his training is that he wanted to get in really good shape, and part of getting in really good shape was he wanted to jump rope, like he wanted to jump rope on a regular basis. If you guys have ever spent any time jumping rope, not like little kid, like not that one, the actual this one, you see boxers do it, it's an incredible workout, like it will wear you out in no time, but Dale is trying to learn to jump rope, and he just wasn't very good at it. Like he's, you have to jump the rope to be able to jump rope. And he was struggling with that piece. And so I think for most of us, if we were going to get better at jumping rope, we would probably, I don't know, commit to spend five minutes a day trying to jump rope, right? That seems fair. Or maybe 10 minutes a day or just make a commitment every day. I'm going to spend time trying to jump rope and therefore I will hopefully get better at jumping rope. And then you meet someone like Dale, and the priority to jumping rope and the commitment just goes to a level where you're like, you got to be kidding me. So Dale's struggling to jump rope, so he decides, you know what? You know how I'm going to get better? I'm going to make it a consequence when I fail at jumping rope. So Dale, this happened, takes a lead pipe and puts it on the jump rope. So now his jump rope has a huge hunk of heavy metal that makes it so every single time he fails to jump the rope, he smashes himself in the shin or the toes with a lead pipe. Thank you. Your face is my face when I was in group. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. That's not real. What? And I just, it was unbelievable for me because I'm imagining driving down the street and looking in someone's driveway or garage and just seeing someone go, ting, ting, ting. Ah! And then just back at it, ting, 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 ah! And I'm saying, like, you've got to be kidding me. But he did it. And the funny thing to me is, 
I think every once in a while we bump into situations like that, or maybe we don't bump into situations like that, but there are similar things where you get to situations and you go, man, that person's commitment level is just at a completely different range. Like, they've taken this to a whole new level. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not recommending bashing your legs with a pipe. That's not what we're doing this morning. But in that, you see a commitment level and a priority of something that is different than I think most of us have come to expect or be comfortable with. And this morning, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. Is we're in this series, we're talking about new life and how do we get to this new life that Jesus offers us? Because he offers us this incredible life and he says, I have this in store for you. But truthfully, a lot of us aren't experiencing that. There's a lot of us in this room where our life looks the same as it did before, it looks the same as everyone else. We have the same amount of stress, anxiety, worry, problems, fears, all those things. And if we look around and we're really honest, life doesn't look that different. And so we're asking this question, how do we experience that new life? And I think a huge piece of that is to experience new life, we have to have new priorities. We have to have something that is a different level of commitment to something. And in this series, what we're doing is we talk about new life as we're looking at biblical characters that exemplify this new life. They put it on display and then we're using them as a case study to go, okay, how did they get there? And the one we're looking at this morning is Stephen from Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. And it takes new life to a whole different standard. It takes new priorities to a whole different standard. Um, And it's incredible to look at Stephen's life. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. But in case you guys don't know this, Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's talk to the Sanhedrin. And it's literally like 60 60 verses long. So I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to summarize it for you guys, okay? So what we have in Acts chapter 6 when we meet Stephen is this. The apostles, the ones that were with Jesus and following him, they are kind of getting caught up in the logistics of the ministry. The ministry at that time included taking care of the widows and giving them food. And so part of this was kind of going awry. It wasn't working out so well. And so the apostles are now spending a bunch of their time trying to figure out the logistical issues of why the widows aren't getting fed the way that they should and why they're not getting treated the way that they should. And one of the apostles finally goes, you know what? We shouldn't be spending all of our time doing this. We should delegate this out to someone else. And so the group of believers at that time, they choose seven people. And one of the people chosen is Stephen. But the amazing thing is, Of the seven that are chosen, Stephen is the only one that gets this special recognition at the start, and it says that he was full of grace and power, and then moves on later to say that he was full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And so we know that Stephen is this incredible figure in the church, that he's doing these things, and it talks about how he's going around, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, he's performing all these signs, he's just doing incredible stuff to the point that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time get real angry with him. And so they come and they go to confront him. And it says there's this whole group that confronts Stephen. But it says Stephen is so full of power, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit that nothing they say can trap him. So Stephen's got a whole group accusing him of stuff, and he's just, he is on point. And he's firing back, and they can't, get, they can't trap him anywhere. And so what they do is they get a group of people to create false accusations about him, And then they take him to court based on those false accusations. So they bring him into the court, and it's based on these false accusations. 
They lay it out, and then they say, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? And here's where it's been incredible, but it, it takes it up a new lodge. It goes lead pipe on the place right here. Stephen doesn't even respond to try to defend himself. He doesn't say a word about, hey, you guys are all liars, and this isn't true. What he does is he immediately just goes to the Old Testament, and he starts talking through all the things that took place in the Old Testament. And really what he does is he's just pointing out, God has been at work this entire time. And this is continuing what God is doing. This is something else that's going on. But here's what's taken place with your ancestors and in the past. And now we're moving to Jesus. And he does this whole long speech. And the whole point of it is he's demonstrating Jesus and the truth of Jesus to this whole group of people. So he's in a court with his life on the line. And they say, defend yourself. And he goes, nah, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And then he gives the whole story about Jesus, and he finishes it like this, to just really put the dagger in. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51 to 53, this is how he finishes his talk. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Do we understand what's happening here? Stephen's life is on trial. And he doesn't even worry about his own life. He takes this opportunity and says, let me tell you what you've done to Jesus. Let me proclaim the truth of the gospel here and now. And he takes it to the level to, to even saying, you're the ones that just killed the righteous one. You just did that. And in a shocking turn of events, they get angry. They get really, really angry. And it says, after he says this, in Acts 7, 57 to 60, it says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And to stone him means they're literally taking rocks and throwing it at him with the intent of killing him. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. What? That makes the lead pipe look normal. How, do we, how does he get to this level? Stephen, you're being called out for something you didn't do. It's a bunch of lies. Your life is on the line because they've made up stories about you. It's not the truth. Defend yourself. No, I'm not going to defend myself. Instead, I'm going to proclaim Jesus to this whole group of people. I'm going to tell the truth to this whole group of people. And then they get so angry about hearing the truth, they drag him out of the city. They begin to throw rocks at him until they kill him. In his response to the people that have just falsely accused him and now are unjustly murdering him is this, Lord, you take care of my spirit and please forgive them for what they're doing. Lord, forgive the people who are unjustly murdering me now. 
And I hope we see something here because all of this is incredibly similar to the life of Jesus at the end. He's falsely accused. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's getting killed by people that it's based on something that's not the truth. And in the midst of it, he commits his spirit to God. And then he says, Father, forgive them. What is Stephen doing? He's being Jesus. Stephen is being Jesus to these people. He's taking it so seriously that he goes, my priority is not my own life. It is to be like Christ. And he lives it out. And as we look at this new series and as we're wrestling through this, how do we experience new life? I think something that's incredibly clear from Stephen is this. We get new priorities. And I think the first lesson that's so incredibly important for us to learn is if we're going to really experience this new life, our priority can no longer be ourself. It has to be Jesus. And Stephen takes it to a different level than what we're comfortable with because it pushes us way outside of our comfort zone because his life is on trial. And he doesn't say, hey, let me defend myself. He says, let me just proclaim Jesus. And what happens in my life, that's up to God. I entrust that to him. My job is to be like Christ, and I will represent him. Even if it costs me my life. And I think the first lesson we take from Stephen is his priority is clearly God. That's the only way you can be in a situation like that, not even try to defend yourself and just proclaim the truth. And the truth of that situation is I think that's, it's important to hear in the message or in the gospel or in the story in Acts. But what does that mean for us? How many of us, if I'm going to step on some of your toes real quick, how many of us have missed an opportunity to experience new life because our work policy says we're not supposed to bring Jesus up at work? I know, I offended you. But how many of us have walked away from opportunities to experience new life because I was ashamed or because I was concerned with the outcome or because I was embarrassed or because what are my friends going to think of me? There's a lot of big causes that have a lot of momentum, and it seems weird if I have to step into opposition of that, and what's what's the consequence going to be for me if I do that? And how many times have we missed new life because of it? How many times did Jesus have something in store for us, but we didn't experience it because we shied away from it because the handbook says to, or because we've been told for a really long time, Don't talk about money, don't talk about religion, and don't talk about politics. So we miss it. And there's an opportunity or there's something that could have been there, but we miss it because we were more concerned with ourself and our outcome than going to try to be like Jesus. And Stephen paints this picture so clearly to go, I'm not even going to try to defend myself. I'm not concerned with my outcome. I am here to be Jesus to others. My outcomes are based on God, not me. But that's a different level of priority than what we're used to. That's a different call than what we're used to. But what if that's what it takes to experience new life? What if Jesus meant that when he said, to follow me, you must die to yourself and take up your cross to follow me? What if that's the call? 
And what if more than that, what if in the midst of hardship, in the midst of those times where we take a stand, and maybe it doesn't go well, maybe it's difficult, maybe it causes problems, what if that's when we learn what it is to actually trust and have faith? What if you had to lose your job in order to understand God will truly provide for me and he is faithful? What if to relinquish control and say, you're controlling the direction of my life, that means we actually have to let go of the direction of our life and entrust that to him? I know no one wants to hear it. But if Scripture calls and says you have this new life that's offered to you, I don't think it's supposed to be easy. And I don't know why we come up with ideas sometimes that God just wants to take our life and go, okay, this is what you want to do. Let me just bless that a little bit. He doesn't say, let me just enhance the life that you're hoping for. He says, let me give you new life. But to get there, you got to die to yourself. And the call is greater than what we want it to be sometimes. But I think the truth is we're not going to have the opportunity to experience the life that Christ actually has for us until we get to the place where he becomes the number one priority. And that's where we learn to trust and to follow. The second thing that stands out to me in this that I think we're supposed to take is this. When Stephen is talking about what's going on, When he addresses the Sanhedrin and he goes back to the Old Testament, he goes through this list. It's like a highlight reel from the Old Testament. It's these heroes and what took place and what they did. And we were, there's a group of us that was working on questions and Rachel Nelson wrote out some of these things and she made this cool list of this is what God did for those people. And I want to read it to you. We're just summarizing. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen brings up Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And when he talks about Abraham, he talks about how God appeared to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham and gave him directions, and God gave him a covenant. To Joseph, it says that God was with him, that God rescued him, and that God gave him favor and wisdom. To Moses, it says God saved him at birth, that God appeared to him, that God spoke to him, that God delivered him, that God did wonders and signs, and that God gave living oracles to those people. It's a highlight of all the things that took place in the Old Testament where God was faithful and he showed up. And that's what Stephen highlights. But there's also the other side. Stephen's not naive in this situation. He also highlights the hardships that took place. With the hardships, he says, with Abraham, God gave him no land inheritance and no offspring. God gave his people, he allowed him to be enslaved for 400 years. With Joseph, God allowed him to be betrayed by his brothers and to go through a famine. And with Moses, God allowed him to be exiled, to have the golden calf issue, and to have God turn away from those people. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that when Stephen is on trial in front of these people, he cites back and goes to all these different things? I'll tell you why I think it matters. Because Stephen's faith and trust in who God was was not just rooted in some emotional experience. Stephen knew without question, God has been faithful for generation to generation to generation to generation. And over and over and over again, God has proved that he's trustworthy and he's faithful. And it's not just in his life, it's through all of time. 
And Stephen looked back and he said, bigger than my situation, God has been who he has claimed to be over and over and over again. So whether this trial ends in my favor or whether this trial does not go well, I know that God will remain faithful. I can trust him because for thousands of years, he's been trustworthy. And it's not just some emotional experience. It's who God has been, and he's proven it through the generations. And for some of us, we struggle with this. Because we take parts of Scripture and we go, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I believe that. Did God really split a Red Sea and have people walk through on dry land? Is that actually a thing? Or is that maybe just like a kind of a parable type thing and there's just a moral at the end of it? Like, hey, try to trust God. And I think sometimes we don't spend the time wrestling with those things and really getting a conviction of this is who God is and it's true and he is faithful. And it damages us because, to be honest, if we can't believe that God showed up back then, do we really think that God is going to show up now for you? If I can't put my trust in God being faithful then and actually doing what he said he was going to do then, do I really think I'm going to trust him with my life now? Do I believe he will be faithful? Not an emotional experience faithful, but truly through the generations, you have never taken your hand off of your people and you never will, so I will trust it. Because it's a different level of faith and trust and it leads to a different life. And the last thing we get from Stephen is this. I shouldn't say the last thing. The last thing we're going to take out is this. I think Stephen knew without question that he was part of something bigger. Stephen knew there was something more going on, and Stephen also knew that he was never created for this life here. The life that he was living here on earth was never the end goal. That was never the point. That was never the hope. He knew that there was something bigger taking place, and I don't think there's any way you get to death by being wrongfully accused at the end of your life, and to relinquish that and simply say, Lord, I am giving you my spirit. And for every single person here who's throwing stones at me to take my life, forgive them. Forgive them, Lord. Why? Because he knew there was something bigger going on. He knew he was part of something bigger, and he also knew his life was not ending here on earth. There was a much greater place for him to go. When he died, he knew he was heading home to be with God and that he was going to be how he was created to be, and he would experience peace and safety and joy and comfort and fulfillment in a way that he would never get to experience here on earth. He knew his soul was going home to be united with his creator. And as it says at the end of this passage, it doesn't say, and then that killed Stephen. It says what it says for Christians when they die. It says, and then he fell asleep, which means he died to his earthly side, but it wasn't over. And Stephen knew it's not over. There's something bigger going on, and I'm not living for this life. This is not my end goal. It's not what I was created for. I was created for something different that will last for eternity. And I will experience something there that I will never get on earth. 
And I think it's incredible also that in this passage, the writer of Acts decides to add in as they are stoning Stephen, the people that are throwing the rocks at him to kill him take their coats and they lay it down at the feet of a man named Saul. And there's no way Stephen could have known this, but we get to know this. Saul later on in Scripture becomes Paul, and Paul becomes a foundational figure for the entire church, and he's the one that writes a majority of the New Testament. And yes, God clearly did other things in Paul's life, but what we don't know is how much of an impact did it have on Paul, standing there watching this man act just like Jesus did, as his life was being unjustly taken. And Saul later goes on to change the church, probably, arguably, more than anyone other than Jesus. And he was standing there giving approval to what was taking place to Stephen. So my question for us is, are we being challenged to change what the priority is? Is our life actually at a place where we can say, striving to be like Christ is my priority? More than taking care of myself, more than getting what I want, more than my stuff, I go into situations trying to display Christ to others. Because if we're not at that place, I think we're going to have a really hard time experiencing the new life that Jesus offers. And as much as I would love to say, oh, it's easy and it's just going to happen, it's just a genie in a bottle type situation, just pray for it and it should go that way. I can't back that up with Scripture. I can't back that up with the disciples' lives. I can't back that up with what took place to Jesus. And I think what it's saying is when Jesus says, you must die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me as he means that. Being like him has to become the priority if we really want to experience this new life. So my question for all of us is this. How different would your life look if you did that? If tomorrow you made a commitment to say, Lord, every interaction, I'm going to think about what you have called me to first, and I'm going to make what you and being like Jesus is the priority over what I want or how I feel or what I think should happen. You're going to be the priority. Because what I don't want any of us to do in this room is this, is to leave this and feel guilty and go, oh my gosh, I have to try harder because trying harder probably won't last a week and it's not going to get you anywhere. If we're actually going to set out to do this life, I think what we need to realize is the only way to accomplish it is the way Jesus did, to go, Father, I'm not going to do anything on my own accord. I'm going to do it through you. So for us, it means taking every circumstance as an opportunity to go, God, what is it that you have for me in this circumstance? God, what do you want me to do in this circumstance? And I think so often for us, we think through these lenses where we go, God, what am I supposed to say to this person? Or how am I supposed to serve? Or how am I supposed to give? But I think more than that, we have to realize if we're really going to live this new life, that means taking every opportunity to go, God, what do you have for me in this circumstance? Not just to go do something, but to understand your love for me. Because maybe God isn't asking you to do something. He's asking you to just sit and understand, child, you're forgiven and you're loved. Would you please just sit in my love and forgiveness for you? Quit moving so fast throughout the day that you go by all the blessings that are in front of you. You don't see the things that I have around you. Please just stop. 
Stop carrying the burden of all this control and all this pressure and just realize, I've got you. Trust me. For some of us, I think he just wants us to stop and walk outside and realize, man, I'm surrounded by nature that's incredible, and God did all of this so I can sit here in this and just trust that he's good and that he loves me, that he's capable to handle things much larger than just me. But we have to slow down, and we have to take every circumstance. We have to wake up in the morning. We have to take every situation and go, okay, this is an opportunity to commune with my Father, to hear from God, and to see what he has. God, do you want me just to read a verse over and over again? Do you want me just to sit still and listen to your voice? Do you want me to talk to someone else? Do you want me to sing a worship song? Do you want me just to sit and not have any agenda at all? But if we're going to experience that new life, we have to make that priority and we have to relinquish our desires and our wants and go, God, what do you want? What is this day supposed to be filled with? So my challenge for all of us is to take Monday and do it. If you successfully get through some time on Monday, try Tuesday. Build from there. But allow it to be the priority that it's supposed to be and see how much life changes. Just see how much new life comes in. And take it moment by moment. But see how much God transforms. See if it's not worth it. See if it's not so much better. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the way that you love us, Lord. Lord, you are so faithful and you have been faithful from generation to generation. And Lord, truthfully, there's times I know in my life where I feel like I'm following and being faithful and then I read a passage like Acts 6 and 7 and I see Stephen's life and I realize, Lord, there's a whole different level. So I ask for everyone, Lord, that this would not be a guilt-inducing message to feel like we've fallen short, but to understand if we really want to experience this new life, there's a call to it. But Lord, I ask that your love would be what drives us to fulfill that call. That we would understand that you have a life for us that we could never create on our own and we could never experience without you. So Lord, I ask that you would give us that experience. To know what it is to feel like you walk, we get to walk through a day closely with you. With your love and your hand and your guidance being our just everything for that whole day, Lord. Father, we love you. Amen.